Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Jonathan R. Woodward. He's a professor, uh, part of environmental sciences at University of Tokyo. And we're going to talk about magnets interacting with uh, human cells, which may shed light on how animals migrate, but I'll let Jonathan describe that. So welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for coming. Hi there. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell me about your research. Okay, well, um, I, probably the reason that, that, that I'm talking to you is that some of our recent experiments uh, have uh, made a step forward in what we're looking at. Our re- in our recent work, what we, what we found is that we can take our living cells, so the cells we actually use are uh, a very famous kind of cell used by researchers, which are called healer cells. They're actually human cancer cells, uh, and we can grow these cells, and all cells have various molecules and components in them that if you if you shine light on them will actually light up slightly they'll glow them what we say they'll uh and all cells do this this is a well-known phenomenon study yeah so so this is one way you can see this so you can take any kind just some regular cells if you shine the light light on them they will slightly glow The, the thing to realize that this is this is very tiny you really you really need a very special microscope to see that you can't you know you wouldn't see it just by looking but what what we what we did was uh, we were able to demonstrate that the 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 amount that these cells glow the amount that they fluoresce changes when you put the cells in a microscope. So what we actually do is we we develop this special kind of microscope and we watch as we shine a, a blue light uh, on the cells they emit green light. This 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 glow is green and it comes from a, a series of molecules known as flavin. And those molecules get excited and they and they they emit this green glow but but what's interesting is that then uh how much they glow depends on what else they're getting up so they're, they're busy doing other things uh, and we can actually use the amount that they glow to work out what other chemistry and it turns out that by changing by applying this magnetic field we're we're observing some other chemistry that they're doing they're doing magnetic field dependent chemistry in the cells so so this is a really interesting this is kind of the first time that anyone has been able to see a regular cell responding in real time so what we do is we switch the magnetic field on and off and on and off and we can see the fluorescence get dimmer and brighter dimmer uh, in wait real- how are you inducing changes in the magnetic field is it's with light or with no, no, changing no, we, magnetic we, we, field no we literally we so so we we apply uh, uh, the light continuously we shine light on them uh, and then what we do is we as as these cells are glowing we we switch a field on and off so we have a, a very special electromagnet that allows us to make a magnetic field uh, at the sample at the center of our microscope and we can apply that a field in any direction and as you know we can change its strength and we can do different things with it so what we do is we turn that magnetic field on and off and we can actually see you almost with your eyes on the camera but certainly in the data very clearly that as you apply this field and switch it on and off that the brightness of the light coming from the cells but why would you have to uh you know hit the cells with light at all why not try varying the magnetic field to see you but, know what's going on 
so the light is what you're using to measure the chemistry. It's very difficult to, so what we're actually trying to do is watch chemical reactions as they're happening inside the cell, which is an extremely difficult to do. You need someone mm -hmm. to watch the progress of the, of the, of the reaction. Now, it turns out that in, in, you know, in physics, in, in chemistry, generally, cell fluorescence, I mean, fluorescence of molecules, this property is a very, very common way to monitor what molecules are up to. So that's what we're doing. We're using this natural glow that exists in the cell as a means of tracking the cell's chemistry. And then we're observing directly the changes in the chemistry by applying. Well, why not use fluorescent tagging of the cells? Would that kill them? Would that work just as well or no? But I mean, so the point there is that you, one of the, one of the things I think that's important about this is you've not touched the cell in any way. So the moment you put a fluorescent tag in and then say, we can see, a change with the magnetic field someone you'll always be subject to the criticism well you've you've changed the cell by putting this so the idea okay. here is that yeah so this is brilliant you're using the cell's own natural properties to track its own reaction you don't need to modify it in any way you don't need to mess with it. of course there are methods and actually one of the other things that we're working on in our lab in a completely separate project is trying to make magnetically sensitive very uh, bright fluorescent tags for molecules that that tell you about what's going on, not just not just by their fluorescence, but also magnetic field response. So that's another thing that we work on. Before you start modulating the magnetic field, mm. uh, the light that's hitting the cells, mm -hmm. what kind of chemistry is that causing to happen just without any modulation of magnetic field? The point here is that when yeah, when we when we shine the light on the cells, it's it's initiating these photochemical reactions uh, in in these molecules. Um, so the chemistry that's going on is the same. And then what we're doing, uh, what the magnetic field allows us to do is make modulations. So we then observe those modular chemistry as modulations in the light. So uh, that what, what's really critical here and what we're, why did we think this work is important is that when you shine light on cells, uh, then the molecules in those cells are undergoing photochemical reactions that proceed through species, short-lived species known as radicals. Uh, and that's those radical pairs are at the heart of why the the, the why the light becomes field sensitive, uh, and those are interesting those radical pairs because they are what are what are proposed as the probably the most likely suspected mechanism by which uh, you know some animals may be able to sense. So, what kind of uh, chemistry do you see happening? Is it is it in human cells you're looking at, or what model are you using? The cells that we use are, are called HeLa cells. They're they were originally uh, human-derived cells. They're, they're from a cancer patient years ago. Uh, and the, these are, they're what's called an immortal cell light. And uh, they're, they're a very good model cell for modeling normal cell behavior that researchers use. So the, the beauty of these cells is you can freeze some and then you can grow, grow new cells from them at will. All right. So again, what kind of chemistry do you see going on? Is this stuff happening in the mitochondria or what's, what's different about the cells when you modulate the magnetic field? Okay, so it's probably more important to talk about the, the chemistry itself. So, I mean, what we do in my lab and what we've done for, for many, many years is study, uh, we, we're not, you know, I'm, I'm not a biologist originally, I'm a, I'm a physical chemist. And what we study is this, um, these kind of species called radical. And the radical pairs are, are fascinating species because uh, they their, their chemistry depends on a very, very fundamental property uh, of matter called uh, electron spin. So, and, and that's why there's an awful lot of interest in this because basically the reason that a magnetic field can affect them is all to do 
uh, with the, the 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 spins of two two their relatives. So I can talk a little bit about that. Again, the chemistry in biological terms, what kind of chemistry seems to be affected and what is its function in the cells before we go into the specifics of it? I, and Tyler, we have no idea. We don't yet know if this has physiological consequences or not. That's That's all future work to be done. So what we know at the moment is that cells, or basically all cells, contain uh, molecules in them called flavins, and they have flavins in different forms, okay? So the flavins are a very important molecule in biology. They're used by many proteins as what we call a cofactor, uh, and for example, they're flavins are used in plants, uh, in, in enzymes called photolyases, for example, to repair DNA when it gets damaged by life. So, I mean, all the details of all the flavins in cells is still, you know, very much an open, uh, an open piece of research. People are still understanding more and more about this. What we can say so far from experiments is that the flavins that are naturally present in the cell, when, when they're exposed to light, undergo, they get photo excited by the light, and then they generate these species called that. So, so that's, that's what we understand. What we don't know, yeah, as uh, it's a very important point that you made, what we don't know yet is whether that has any consequences of the cell. So d- does that get, uh, you know, turned into a, a, a response in any important uh, biological process? That we don't know. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So what's the first steps now in your experimentation? You're modulating the uh, magnetic field. Uh, mm-hmm. one, one question I want to ask you beforehand is, how does the frequency of light affect the cellular response with or without the magnetic field? Have you okay. tested that? Yes, of course. So, I mean, that's a critical part of the of of what we do. So, basically, this is the standard thing in case This is spectroscopy. So, what we what we carefully control is the 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 wavelength or the color of the light that we're putting in, and we look very carefully at the wavelengths of light um, that are emitted, the the glow. Um, and so, what what happens is, is if you put different colors of light into your cells, you're going to excite different molecules, and we choose our light carefully. To be uh, what the, the light we use is 450 nanometers, which is blue light. That light is about where our flavin molecules get most excited. So we can target the flavin molecules by using that light. And then if we look at the light that we get sent, sent back from the cells, then uh, that is exa- shows a characteristic dependence on the wavelength. We measure it at lots of wavelengths, and we can determine that it has exactly the, the light characteristics that we expect from these molecule flavins. So part of the work we do here is, is, is to demonstrate for sure that it's the flavins that are giving this chemistry. This well, if you know that it's flavins, what, uh, what, you know, biochemically, what do flavins typically do in cells? Well, like I said, they have me- they're in many things, and they have many roles. Uh, so exactly what, and, and you know, we're hitting the whole cell here and looking at looking at what's going on. 
so there are there are uh, you know different uh, and and I mean one of the important things is that uh, you know some cells have different flavin containing molecules and and there are some that are in common. All right, so so in the in the quest, for example, to understand how, for example, birds navigate. The, 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 the proteins that are, are proposed in that are called cryptochromes and that the heart of cryptochromes are flavin. Uh, and as I said, you know, the, the flavins are involved in, in a, a, a wide range of different uh, chemical procedures that are in various different proteins. So in our experiments at the moment, we don't have an uh, ability to dissect which flavins are exactly what they're doing that are giving the response. And so that, that of course, is something that we need to start uh, looking at in the future. So one of our important next steps is to try and identify, you know, exactly where the flavins are that we're seeing. So I mean, inside which proteins or inside which kind of environments in the cell, and then and then un un untangle the chemistry. Well, on a slide, can you have cells that are illuminated and adjacent ones that are not, but yet they're still subject to the same pulse and magnetic field and see if there's any difference? Well, so again, the, you... You, this is a real-time experiment, so you can only, in this experiment, you only see what's happening to the cells uh, while the light is on, right, while they're, while they're fluorescent. So, and, and our microscope is designed specifically so that we irradiate only one region of one cell, the region of interest that we're in, uh, during the experiment. So we deliberately, uh, you know, focus our light onto uh, a, region of the, uh, a region of the cell of interest. So, but I mean, yeah, of course, one thing we can do now is, of course, we can we can look at the effect of uh, we can try and look for downstream effects on the cells by applying them to magnetic fields or not. One of the problems, one of the problems that there always is when you're concerned with magnetic effects in biology is that when you try and do kind of statistical analysis of cells and things like that, you're, you're, you're getting down to the limit of the effects that you see. Uh, I, I've been working, actually, when I was a PhD student, I was trying to look for magnetic, many, many years ago, look for magnetic responses of chemistry in cells then. And we were using those kinds of approaches, you know, where we, for example, look for DNA damage in cell by measuring lots of cells afterwards and seeing how much damage and whether the field effect. Uh, and, you know, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to be sure. Some data looks like there's a real effect. Another data looks like there isn't. And this, it's very hard to pull out from statistics. So the beauty of this experiment is you don't have to worry about that. This is much more a chemistry experiment than it is a kind of a, a biological statistical assay. You see the effect directly in real time. You can see it happening. So you're not illuminating the entire cell. You're just illuminating a, a, sub, a subsection of the cell. That's right. Well, why not do the whole cell? Well, what would be different about that, you think? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, I mean, in the case of um, the HeLa cells, they have a very particular shape and they have a very big nuclear, nuclear section, nucleus, uh, and, and we don't see any fluorescence. So we're actually, the, you, you see the other parts of the cell around it. And yeah, we just then, because of the shape of the cells, we kind of optimize the size of the spot that we look at to get as much of that in a single image where we're sure it's the main region. And then we can, you know, we, we measure many cells and we look in, but this is the region of interest. Yeah, there's just basically a big black hole. In this. So this region is what, just in the cytoplasm or where does it appear to be localized? So we see, I mean, it's very clear from, from our images that, you know, it's uh, that we, we see it, for example, in, in the mitochondria. So in our, in our images, for example, uh, you can see the mitochondria moving. 
uh, and that they're alive, you know, that, that this thing, and they're, and they're quite brightly from. So we haven't, we haven't done an analysis yet of, you know, exactly where the fluorescence, again, that's, that's future work. Uh, but that, yeah, we, I mean, our key suggestion from it is that we want to, we want to look at potential uh, flavin containing species. Yeah, that's our- so again, what have you noticed so far with the changing magnetic field? What, uh, what chemistry appears to be, you know, turned up or turned down or happening? Again, this is, this comes back to this, this is, uh, this, this species known as radicals. So it's, it's a very, it's a very complicated process to explain. Um, it, well, pretty difficult. To, uh, but the idea is, is when you, you, you excite your, your flavin molecule, then what happens is a nearby molecule in, in our study, we still don't know which the, which molecule the partner will be yet. Uh, and that's one of the key find out. Uh, in, in cryptochrome, for example, it's a tryptophan residue in the amino acid tryptophan. And what happens is, is this molecule donates an electron. It tosses an electron to the excited. And what that means is that the flavin molecule now one more electron to begin with, and the other molecule has one less electron. And normally, most molecules in nature have an even number of electrons. They're all paired up in the orbital of the molecule. And when this, this electron toss happens, it means one ele- it means both these species now have an odd number. So one of them's got one more than normal and one of them's got one less. And what that means is they have these unpaired electrons. And unpaired electrons in chemistry are important uh, because they expose the properties of the electron. So, so that's, that's what you're seeing in here. These ra- this, this pair of radicals, uh, what you actually see is radicals themselves are then dangerous, all right? Radicals are very reactive species. So if, the, if these radicals go off, they can go, uh, you know, cause damage elsewhere. But what, what is largely happening is once the molecule has tossed the electron, after a short time, the, the, the flavin tosses it back. But its ability to toss it back is what's influenced the field. So uh, what, the, what the magnetic field does is it controls the total spin state of these two, these two radicals in this kind of quantum mechanical process. And that's what, that's what determines uh, how quickly the... So where in nature would, uh, would people be affected by this? Or I guess other animals, like, you know, the earth has a magnetic field, I guess, incredibly weak, but is that enough? Like, have you tried an experiment where you just changed the magnetism, you know, around a set of cells so that it just counteracted, let's say the earth's magnetic field and to see if the chemistry changed there, you know, make it appear as if there is no directional magnetic field of the earth would that cause any biological response so that's a that's a very uh, it's a very good question and so so this is a little complicated because when scientists working in the area of radical pairs do this okay so what we know from radical pairs is that they as you change the magnetic field they don't respond linearly right they have that their main response their in most cases, their strongest response is in the strength of the uh, is in the kind of strength of fields that we looked at. So that's what you look at. It's in the order of uh, tens of millitesla, a few millitesla, tens of so. That's a lot stronger than the Earth's. Okay, but we also know that radical pairs, many of them, when the conditions are right, they can also show a completely opposite effect at much weaker magnets. This is what's called the low field, and it's that low field effect. Um, that has led to radical pairs being a, a key candidate uh, for explaining, for example, animal magnetos. So there have been studies, uh, there have been chemical studies that have shown that you can make a kind of designer molecule that will generate radical pairs and that will show magnetic responses of the kind you described, right? So that if you switch on and off the Earth's magnetic field, 
the molecule, uh, you, you can observe a response. But so far, that has only ever been done in a kind of designer molecule system. There has never been any study that's done that in, in a natural uh, molecular system. Okay, so then if you move to real, real molecules, then scientists have studied the cryptochromes, which is this protein from, from birds and from other animals that, that's, that's been implicated in the sort of magnetic field response to, to the Earth's. Um, and they can see these radical fairs formed in there, and they can see the magnetic effect in there. But there has been no, no one so far has been able to observe effects, you know, just in the molecules themselves in a test tube uh, at these very, very weak fields. And that's, a, that's an ongoing uh, experimental and theoretical challenge. There's a huge debate in the field about what's the case. So, so there's something missing in the story. I, I, I don't want to kind of come... Com, conflate our story too much with that story because while we we're addressing flavins and radical pairs uh, and cells uh, the, the the bird navigation story has a much more specific twist it's looking at the cryptochrome specifically and looking for the response you described so you may find effects but then that obviously as usual it may not necessarily translate to biological systems because there may be you know hidden interactions but at least you're seeing that there's effects. Yeah, so this we've is seen at a, a, a high magnetic field level relative to, to the Earth's magnetic field, right? That's exactly it. So this, it's, the, the argument goes like this. Radical pairs predict, let's say, two kinds of effect, one at very weak fields and one at stronger fields. And we can see radical pairs responding to stronger fields in cells now. For the, so that's the step. So, of course, the, one of the obvious next steps is, okay, can you see... Uh, a weaker field. And the reason we've not done that yet is that you have to be very, very careful cancelling out the Earth's magnetic field. It's, it's non-trivial to do that and be sure you're doing it correctly. So our current magnet system is, you know, excellent for, for applying slightly stronger fields, but we, I don't think it can give us the level of certainty that we've completely cancelled the Earth's field. So we will build a new set of magnetic field generating equipment to work at these because uh, you have to of course think in three dimensions you've got to cancel the field along exactly the same axis which depends on where you are on the earth and which way the earth field is pointing so you've got to work very hard to get rid of the earth and we, we will do that well, i guess i guess there's two ways to do it i just realized one is to the only fields that you apply are weak ones to try to counteract the earth's magnetic field but another way to do it is to counteract the earth's magnetic field at the weak level, but then apply strong level magnetic fields on top of that. Yes, and I that's guess exactly try to wipe it. out that background signal, right? Yeah, that's exactly what you do. So basically, yeah, your 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 job. I mean, you're doing it all with the same coils. But once you've once you've found it, once you've built a system where you can convincingly control the field in three dimensions and completely counteract the Earth's magnetic field, you can then superimpose another field in any direction of whatever strength you're generating. So yeah, that's exactly what you would do. So you can switch the Earth's field on and off, and then you can apply smaller fields in the Earth or bigger fields. But well, what's what's the end goal of the research that you're doing? What do you want to figure out? Well, I, so there are a number of things. Obviously, the this, this as I said, this has been a long, an ongoing concern for me. I'm a chemist. I've been studying, and I do in many other projects. You know, study radical pairs in chemical systems and biological systems. And uh, for this particular research, where we we now. I mean, this is a question I've wondered about for, you know, 30 years. How do we, how do we, uh, can we get this magnetic field response? Uh, you know, do, uh, you, you mentioned it already. Does it have a consequence to the cells? All right. Is there, is there, a, is there a downstream biological effect that's processed in some way? Uh, are there any, 
any health implications then of these kind of effects. Uh, but, but, you know, basically this is, we work in a kind of blue sky science way. We, we, we are just trying to understand what's happening. It's, it's absolutely remarkable that there's a quantum mechanical mechanism that would allow chemistry taking place in cells to respond to something as weak as magnetic field. So that in itself is fascinating. And now what we want to do is understand that in all its forms. So we want to know uh, exactly how it's happening, exactly what the molecules are, exactly what the mechanisms and the rates of the processes are. We want to understand it in detail. Uh, and then, of course, once you understand something properly, you can then start to look at the implications and also the application as well. So, you know, this could be, I, I don't know whether it is or not, it could have implications for health, uh, both positive and negative implications for health uh, and magnetic fields. Um, it can have... Well, there have been many studies, there have been many studies on electric fields on the human body. Right, right, right. I mean, we're, we're, ba we're bathed in... You know, nowadays, modern times are bathed in all kinds of EM and magnetic fields and everything. So, Absolutely. I mean, in your experimentation, do you also try to do you incorporate that? Because you, you'd want to, you know, any biological system nowadays is unfortunately, you know, at least us, maybe not as much animals, but they're, they're in a different background environment from, you know, 100 plus years ago. Yeah, that's true. So, so, so that's, yeah. You're into experimentation as well. Yeah, so I mean, with all these things, you're you're limited. You, you you can't you can't switch off the outside world, right? So you're 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 always going to be doing experiments in in the environment in which we live. But what we can do is isolate these effects. I mean, most effects of electric electric fields uh, in the environment are essentially screened out by cells just because of the way you know the the dielectric the properties of the materials in there. So it's usually not an issue. But um, that, that's why people are very interested in whether it's the magnetic field from electromagnetic, you know, electromagnetic fields in our environment that, that can cause an effect because that's not screened now by anything else in the cell. So it can enter right inside. And, and, and now we see that it does. In fact. So but you're absolutely right. I know that this is a very interesting question, but there are good reasons in most cases to it to not expect a lot of the things in the environment to affect us. Uh, offline. Um, I asked you about quantum biology and, you know, your thoughts on it. So if you don't mind, can we restate that? You you started to point out the difference between quantum biology from a biologist's point of view versus a chemist's point of view versus a physicist's point of view. So if you don't mind, just let me know your thoughts about quantum biology in general. Sure. So, I mean, I think uh, quantum biology itself is, is this term that's kind of sprung up in relatively recent years. And it's a, a, a sort of general term that tries to tries to bring together non-trivial quantum effects uh, in biological systems. And I think it has lots of different reactions by, by different people. And I think what I was saying to you before is it really depends on, on your training, your background and your expectations. So it's, in my experience, the, the physicists I know, when they study quantum physics, they're, they're very much focused on the sort of pure mathematical behavior and very, very small objects and doing very, very precise uh, quantum uh, measurement type effects and there's a sort of sense in which seeing any of those amazing quantum effects in big hot wet systems is something that that's surprising uh, and then at the other end that you've got biologists who are of course more much more familiar with people with with things working in a in a normal classical sense and you know most of the our original understanding in biology has has been along those lines but it's always the case i think if you talk to many chemists in particular physical chemists in their training they study 
quantum mechanics basically is the first thing because it's the it's the rules that underwrite all of chemistry. The first thing you need to do to understand chemistry is to know what an atom is and what a molecule is, what a chemical bond is, and all of those things are fundamentally quantum mechanical. So, it, and there are many aspects in chemistry. If you take something like um, isotope effects on, on chemical reaction rates that we've known for a very long time, those are pure quantum phenomena having really clear macro scale effects. You know, you can measure them. They're very useful. You can do useful things with them. Can you give a brief idea of, you know, what do you mean uh, the isotope effect? Okay, so so for example, in chemistry, there's a very famous phenomenon known as the kinetic isotope effect, and what that means is where you, if you do the same chemical reaction with two different chemicals, one of which you, you've substituted one of the isotopes in. So let's say you might have done replaced a hydrogen atom somewhere with a deuterium atom, then remarkably, those uh, depending on the you know the, the chemical reaction itself. Those reactions can take place at quite different rates. One one could be quite fa- uh, you know one could be faster than the other, and the origin of those effects is purely in in quantum mechanics. It's either in uh, a change in the zero point vibrational energies, um, or there are other sort of equilibrium effects you can get as well. But this is this is well known, you know, for decades and decades. And it's and now what one of the aspects, for example, of quantum biology is seeing those kinetic isotope effects happening. Uh, in enzymes and in real biological systems. So that's one of the examples. Um, But I think from a chemist's perspective, you know, we're we're kind of used to that. And the idea, quantum physics looks at the microscale. But what chemistry does is it looks at how the microscale affects the macroscale. That's really one, one way of looking at how chemistry works. And so I think a lot of chemists are a little bit underwhelmed by the term quantum biology because there doesn't seem anything particularly remarkable in it. They might have expected there to be observable quantum quantum effects in biology so all right so tell me about the experimentation you're doing let's recap it in this new light uh, you know let's go over sure. it and I ask you questions sure so okay well let, let me start with the kind of the mechanism that underpins kind of all the research in my lab so and certainly this work what we're interested in what we what we've been studying for many many years in my lab is these species which are known as spin correlated radical pairs Okay, and these species are, you know, well studied, well well categorized, and we we see many, many, many different examples of their behavior in many, many different ways and in many, many different systems. But the basic idea, and I can't remember, I think we discussed this somewhat last time, but the basic idea is that if you, most molecules, almost most molecules are composed, are filled up with electrons. They have a whole series of electrons inside them with different energies. And for the most part, most molecules, all those electrons are actually paired up. So most molecules have an even number of electrons. And I'll explain what I mean by paired up in a moment. But what what you can do is it's possible to do a reaction, for example, between two molecules where you get one molecule to give an electron to the other. And the result of that is now that you've got an odd number of electrons on each molecule. And it turns out that very often that means is that you've got one unpaired electron in each molecule. In chemistry, I guess the sharing of an electron is more of a covalent bond. And then an ionic bond is, are you describing what's called an ionic bond or is this something different? Well, well, okay, yeah, so I'm not discussing, but you're absolutely right. I mean, in the normal case, let's imagine it exactly like that. Let's say you've got a covalent bond. All right. Let's let's talk about this slightly differently. Okay. Let's say you've got a bond between two atoms. Let's just take hydrogen as a simple example. It's not a realistic one in this case, but let's take the hydrogen molecule. So H2, there's a covalent bond 
between the two hydrogen atoms, right? Yeah. Um, and what we could do is we can break that bond. We could break it in one of two ways. We could break it so that both the electrons go on one hydrogen and the other one's left with none. And that would leave you with a, an H plus ion and an H minus ion. Or you could break the bond symmetrically. So each, each hydrogen gets one electron uh, and you'd be left with two hydrogen atoms. And those hydrogen atoms then have an unpaired electron and they're what we call free radical. So, and what you would have done is generate them in a pair. Does that make sense? Well, okay. So yeah, through chemistry, like you said, you can create uh, these, uh, these different scenarios. What's common in nature with hydrogen, for instance? Well, I mean, normally we're talking about deliberately breaking chemical bonds here. Okay. So normally, uh, I mean, it, both, both happen quite commonly. And for example, uh, in biology, enzymes very often use this, uh, what we call homolytic, we'll say where you break bonds evenly and create radicals. They often use radicals, uh, radical roots to, you know, transforming molecules inside enzymes. So radicals are common uh, and, uh, and ions are common. But, but what's really important here is that um, the, the, the idea that you create these two radicals together in a pair. Because just simply from counting, you go odd plus odd equals even, and you start from even. So you generate a pair of radicals. And this is where you get into the interesting quantum mechanical situation, because each electron, I should say a little bit about electrons for the audience. So electrons are species, they're fundamental particles with a number of properties. And some of those are very familiar to us. So we know that they have mass. We know how much uh, the mass of an electron is uh, and they have charge. You know, electrons are, are negatively charged and those are familiar. But electrons also have another fundamental property, just like mass and charge called spin. Yeah. Spin causes a problem because lots of people don't really understand spin properly. Spin's kind of complicated. You have to really do some put some effort in to understand spin. But electron spin is a purely quantum mechanical property. There's nothing equivalent to spin in classical mechanics. So it's a it's a purely quantum mechanical property, and the name spin is both a blessing can you, and a can curse. You about, yeah. Can you talk about spin? I mean, what is it? And I, I believe it creates. Yeah, I'll do my best to, uh, to give you a brief discussion about it. But you know, it's a little complicated. Okay, but okay. So let's electron spin. Okay, so the name itself comes because we like to try and understand things, particularly quantum mechanical things, by analogy with things that we do understand. So the best way to, to start thinking about spin is to think about the Earth going around the sun. All right. And as the Earth goes around the sun, um, it's moving and it has a property in physics, a classical property known as angular momentum. All right. So this is, well, you know, when we learn in high school, uh, you know, when you push a truck along of mass Vm and you push it at velocity V, it has a linear momentum Mv. When something moves in a circle or, or, or something similar in some kind of orbit, it has this property called angular momentum, okay? And so we'd call that angular momentum orbital angular momentum because the, the Earth is orbiting the Sun. But it's really then important to realize that the Earth actually has two kinds of angular momentum. It has this orbital one because it's going around the Sun, but it also has another kind of angular momentum, which is called spin angular momentum because, as we know, the Earth rotates on its own axis. And that motion gives it a completely, it gives it another angular momentum known as which we would call spin angular momentum. And so this, this word was borrowed because electrons in atoms 
at some level, you can kind of think of them a bit like the Earth going around the sun. So you've got electrons moving around central nucleus, and they actually have angular momentum called orbital angular momentum, which describes how they move around. But they have this other property, which looks very like angular momentum and behaves in pretty much the same way. But it's, it's not something we can control. So you, if you could stop the Earth spinning, you would, you would lose that spin angular momentum. But with, with electrons, the spin is built in. You can't make it go away. It's a fundamental thing like their mass or charge. So all electrons have this built-in thing, which we call spin. It's sort of a kind of angular momentum. And an electron can have it two different states, all right? So it can have two different spin states. And it can only exist in, in essentially when we measure it in one of those spin states. Okay. So now going to your experiment, uh, what are some of the particulars mm. of it? Okay, so then, the, so there's this thing then, the radical pair mechanism, and uh, I'll explain it to you in a moment. But the radical pair mechanism was discovered, uh, so it was, was first proposed in the sort of 1960s, and then in the 1970s, people predicted that it should be able to lead to magnetic effects on chemical reactions, and indeed, those were discovered. And so what it does is it relies on, uh, it's a very specific mechanism, uh, and it relies on these spin properties of the two electrons, and I'll explain it in a moment. But, what, but what's been very interesting is, is that in the 1970s, this model was proposed as a model by which uh, animal navigation might work, by which animals may be able to sense magnetic field. And that was dismissed and, and ignored for a long, long time. Uh, but became much more popular in about 2000, and now people have really started to believe it. So let me let me go on and address uh, the, how this works. So when you, if we go back to the situation we discussed a moment ago, we've got a hydrogen molecule. Say, when we break it in half, we have two electrons. We have one electron on each hydrogen. Okay, and there's a very very fundamental law in chemistry called the Pauli principle, and what that means is that inside the molecule, inside the hydrogen molecule, in the covalent bond. The only way to have a covalent bond is if, if the two electrons in there have opposite spins. So I'm going to refer to those spin states as up and down, just for simplicity. So if you've got one of the electrons spin up and the other one spin down, they're paired together. And that's fine. You have a chemical bond. And the key thing is, is when you break the chemical bond, the two radicals remember this. All right. They know what the other what the spin state of the other one is so this this is similar in some ways to some of the kind of quantum communication and teleportation experiments you hear about in physics quick, quick question at the time of the bond does an entanglement happen a quantum entanglement so yeah I, I i've kind of avoided talking about it because it in many ways some of these radical pairs depending on what state they're in we we can we can write them but they are entangled but really, the entanglement is kind of coincidental. It's not, it's not the entanglement that really is at the heart of the radical pair mechanism, which is why I've not kind of deliberately gone down that line. But yes, we're, we, there are four states, basically, that the radical pair can be in, and two of them, two of them are entangled states. But I, yeah, I think uh, it's probably not helpful to, to get too much into that. But in principle, there are, you can, you can okay. do like quantum teleportation experiments with radical pairs, and that's been done a year or so ago. So the idea is, is, is that you've got these these two and they, they remember. And basically in our experiments, what we do is we use the blue light in our experiment and we excite this molecule called a flavin. And when we excite the molecule, a nearby other molecule, usually something like a tryptophan, throws an electron and the flavin catches it. 
So now you've got this radical pair in the same way. So you've got you've got a flavin with one unpaired electron and you've got the other molecule. And where the magnetic field effect comes in is that what happens is, is the electron can only go back if, the, if these electrons remain paired. So if the spin state on the two species, if the two electrons have opposite spin states. But what we know is that over time, due to the interaction of those electron spins with nuclear spins in the molecule so this gets really complicated that drives changes so for example one of the electron spins may flip over when it does the two radicals now don't have paired spins and it turns out to be impossible because of this thing called the Pauli principle for the electron to go back and so in our experiments what we do is we toss this electron over and then we put a magnetic field on and that changes the ease with which the electron comes back and when the electron comes back, the, the flavin can get excited again, and it might fluoresce, it might give out light. But if it's stuck in this other radical pair state with the two spins not able to, with the electron not able to go back, then basically it can't go back to its fluorescing state. And so you see the effects of this chemical, this process going on in the chemistry of these radical pairs, and it's written into the fluorescence. And, and that's what, we, what we're seeing in this experiment. It's a little bit difficult to understand, but is there any clinical significance or like what how do you think this is going to translate into uh, something that can be harnessed and used? So, I mean, it's a very, it's, it's a question to which I, I don't have a, have a great answer at the moment. I mean, certainly, as I've said, the great promise is that this mechanism is the, is the mechanism that's underpinning, for example, the magnetic field sensing ability of animals. So under, understanding that's key. But I mean, certainly from, from our perspective as well, we are, uh, one of the things, one of the projects currently in my lab is to design very very efficient molecules that that are incredibly incredibly easy to detect with fluorescence so that we can detect them down at the single molecule level they actually have strong magnetic field responses due to these radical pair effects and then what we can try to do for example is build probes that we can put in, in inside real biological systems and we can as well as having the, the light response we can use the magnetic response to report on the environment. So that, that that's one sort of practical application. But being able to build kind of biological systems that are, you know, effective sensors of magnetic fields, because it seems the animals can have this a huge acuity to detect tiny fields. So there are there are technological applications, I guess, in things like navigation for, for aircraft and stuff like that as well. Well, so um, if you look at the magnitude of the Earth's magnetic field, how does that compare to the sensitivity of these animals? Are they... Is it well within the limits where they could detect small fluctuations in the Earth, Earth's magnetic field? I mean, that's the remarkable thing about the, the biology. One, straight off, the Earth's magnetic field is very, very small. It's something like 30 to 70 microtesla, depending on where you are on the Earth. It's really, really, really tiny. And animals, you know, all the evidence from, from biology is that, 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 that you can really detect these tiny, tiny fields. And, and, and in some cases, you can map some animals are able to sort of make magnetic maps that can respond to, you know, small changes in the angles and the sizes of these fields. Now, in our understanding in, in the radical pair mechanism, it, we're still struggling to explain how that can be done with such such acuity. And that, that's a really ongoing problem in this field that many people are working to try and solve both experimentally and, and theoretically. But if, if we could build uh, chemical systems that had such acute responses to the magnetic field, yeah, those would be very, very interesting and very, very useful. So what kind of animals appear to be uh, navigating using the Earth's magnetic field? And, you know, physically, well, there's actually... what structures in their body do it? 
Okay, well, I mean, again, uh, this is a a very much a contemporary area. I mean, probably the best studied are migratory birds. Uh, In particular, the European robin has been studied extensively and and it's well understood in in that sense. Uh, The other one that's been very well studied because it's a kind of good scientific host is is the fruit fly, the Drosophila fruit fly. Fruit flies uh, show show magnetic field sensor uh, orientation effects. Uh, some of the other really amazing ones are are turtles, uh, which basically seem seem to use uh, magnetic fields. They, they 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 lay their eggs and then travel in a huge circle for about a year and then are able to swim back to exactly the same spot where they laid their eggs. And and actually, if there are shifts in the Earth's field, you can sometimes see the turtles go back to the shifted location uh, when they get back a year later. But there are many. There, there's a very interesting paper out this month on uh, uh, looking at the effects in, in butterflies. You know, there have, there have been huge range of studies that have been done. When I was uh, working in this field when I was younger, I, uh, I remember this the paper that came out because... Um, it was when basically Google Earth and Google Maps were first launched and became popular. Scientists had a new new data tool and some scientists had basically analyzed the statistics of the the direction of, of cows in fields. <laughs> and they they had suggested that statistically cows aligned themselves along the magnetic field lines. So there, there's, a, there's a huge amount of research that, that goes on. I'm, I, as, a, as you know, I'm not a biologist, so I'm I don't know. I don't read every single biology paper and I'm not up to date on everything, but there is a, there are a wide range. I mean, right down to bacteria, there are what are called magnetotactic bacteria and they work in a different way. They actually grow these tiny magnets inside themselves and they, you know, they swim around in a magnetic field. You can find amazing videos on YouTube of, of them doing it. Wow. That's crazy. So you're hoping to make, uh, like you said, molecules that are very sensitive to, you know, fluorescent, analysis when they're i guess injected or swallowed by a yeah, so, person for, for what medical conditions let's say yeah so we we want to use that to be able to i mean there are lots i think we mentioned it briefly before but there you know the idea of having fluorescent tags in biology is a very very common technique what we what we're trying to do is de- develop some kind of fluorescent tags that give you more information because they show a magnetic field response which reports on the environment of the radical pairs so that's one thing we're we, we, we're, we're working on and we've got some very promising results on yeah so of course there are many other things too what kind of biological mechanisms do you think you can you know look into if you're able to successfully do this <laughs> one of the nice things that what, what these these probes will do it, uh, in a nice way if we can get them to work in the way we'd like is that they can be for example we can decouple the the, the light response which reports on certain things from from the fa- the field effects and what the field response will give us largely is very good indication of the environment so for example how viscous is it are you, you would expect to see very different responses from these things if they were in a membrane for example or if they're in something like cytosol you could use the same probe throughout a cell, for example, and you could buy, you could differentiate regions based not just on the light response, but on the magnetic response as well. So, I mean, this is this is kind of right at the beginning. So we, we will wait and see exactly what applications they can have. But in chemistry, we can use ra- radical pairs in very useful ways to give us very detailed information on processes that are happening nearby. So uh, they can report, for example, on other magnetic species nearby. They can report on, uh, you know, uh, heavy metal ions. There are, there are lots of things that radical pairs can report on in, in a kind of interesting way. Okay. What's ahead for you in the next year or so in terms of experimentation 
to get to like a clinical application? Well, I mean, again, we well, sort of biophysicists or chemists. I mean, it's for me, it's not something like, you know, clinical applications is never not something I've ever thought about. And maybe that's something that I have to really start thinking about now. So our real goal at the moment with certainly with the work that we, we started talking about here with the cell, the cell autofluorescence where, is to really understand the details of that. So we know some of the story now. We know uh, that it's flavins. We don't know what the other radical is. We don't know which particular molecules maybe dominating is it particular proteins uh, we need to do uh, we need to know whether as i said before there's any implications of those effects to the physiology of the cell so do, you know is this just a coincidental effect that we've we've noticed or are there consequences in other actually you know health consequences for the cell and and, uh, and so forth so there's a lot of work to do on that and of course uh, we're doing other work where we're sort of combining those studies with with using cryptochromes in cells to try and investigate the the, the animal navigation stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, we're working on, uh, I have different group, uh, groups in my lab working on different projects. So we've got this, as I said, these sensor molecules that we're trying to build. And we're also doing a lot of work on these magnetic field sensitive polymers at the moment that we've, we've developed. So we've not published any of that yet, but we've got some very exciting stuff on uh, some new kind of polymerization reactions. So. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Jonathan, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, the best place is my lab's uh, website, which I will share with you. You can share that. It's, it's uh Address is um it's opes o p e s dot c dot u dash tokyo dot a c dot j p and then it's uh forward slash spinchem s p i n c h e m so if you go there you can find uh, the, the the group's website and uh, there's information on the news and that we're we're doing and stuff on there so that's probably the easiest link uh, to to get to what we're doing and when you said c do you mean the letter c or the word s e a Sorry, it's, yeah, it's O-P-E-S dot letter C dot U uh, hyphen T-O-K-Y-U dot A-C dot J-P-S spin camera. All right, very good. Okay. Well, Jonathan, thanks for coming on the podcast again. I appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure, pleasure talking. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.